Partnering is not a topic we've covered much on Acquiring Minds. As we all know, buying a business is fraught with risk. Doing it with a partner adds yet more risk to the mix. Today's guest has been through two partnerships that involved buying a business, and he has the scars to prove it. In 2008, Jeff Evenson and his wife acquired a salon doing $3.5 million annually. That is a large salon. Then he and a friend acquired a $12 million precision machine shop in 2018. Both of those partnerships did not end well. And these days, Jeff is vocal that acquisition entrepreneurs be extremely careful and prudent when it comes to buying a business alongside a partner. He has a few rules informed by a few underlying philosophies, all of which he shares in this interview. Please enjoy my conversation with Jeff Evenson about the delicate, unpredictable nature of partnerships. Welcome to Acquiring Minds, a podcast about buying businesses. My name is Will Smith. Acquiring an existing business is an awesome opportunity for many entrepreneurs, and on this podcast, I talk to the people who do it. Listeners of Acquiring Minds know that for almost any business you acquire, its success comes down to the people and how you develop and manage them as their new leader. Thing is, in addition to management, there is also a lot of process and bureaucratic work when it comes to your new employees. Payroll, compliance, HR technology, hiring, to name but a few. These processes are crucial to get right, but at the same time distract from where you want to be putting your energy, in leadership. So, Aspen HR is an HR firm and PEO that takes this work off your plate and handles it with the care it demands. Aspen is owned and run by Mark Sinatra, himself a successful former searcher. So Aspen's own leadership understands the HR challenges that searchers have post-acquisition. The firm is offering Acquiring Minds listeners a complimentary pre-acquisition HR and PEO review for your target business. Check out AspenHR.com or contact Mark directly at Mark at AspenHR.com. Jeff Evenson, welcome to Acquiring Minds. Hey, thanks, Will. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Jeff, I know you through the Acquisition Lab, where you're one of the advisors who mm -hmm. holds regular office hours. And you have been in and around small business acquisition now for 15 years, give or take. Mm -hmm. And you've experienced a couple partnerships along the way in your small business ownership, partnerships that didn't always go as planned. So we're going to hear a couple of stories with a particular focus on what you tell acquisition entrepreneurs today about how to think about entering into partnerships in their path to buying a business. Awesome. So before we get into those stories, Jeff, how about a little, just some background on you? So yeah, my background, I grew up in St. Louis um, and uh, went to West Point um, back in uh, the late 80s, graduated from West Point in 1990, spent a short time in the Army. Um, and then came out of the army, uh, went to grad school, uh, to get an MBA, uh, here in St. Louis. Um, and then I, that was focused mainly in finance. I ended up, uh, trading stocks, uh, for, a wall street type brokerage. Um, I, uh, managed some, uh, some pension funds, um, ultimately landed in the pension department at, uh, Anheuser-Busch, big multinational brewer. Um, 
having been in the in the brewery business, I decided it was probably worthwhile to learn how to sell beer, uh, not just manage pension funds for a beer company. And so I moved around in that company a little bit, landed ultimately in a in a uh, department that was doing um, business acquisitions for um, beer distributors. So that was really the first time that I got exposed to, um, hey, businesses can be bought and sold. There are, uh, you know, there, there are small business owners who actually run those businesses and they, and they, um, they trade for, for multiples of earnings and that sort of thing. So um, had, even though I learned that stuff theoretically in, the, uh, in my MBA program, actually seeing it on the ground and seeing how it worked was fascinating to me. Um, so at the same time, my, um, my, my wife at the time had, uh, was an attorney who had started working for a hair salon. Um, and she'd been with them for, uh, about six or seven years before she offered to, or she, she kind of came to a crossroads. Like I'm either going to own this company or I'm going to move and start my own law firm or something. I don't know what I'm going to do. So, um, she came to a point where she needed to make a decision and, um, and we talked about it. We decided that, um, hey, let's think about being business owners and what that might look like. And that was kind of the beginning of uh, me being involved in uh, small business, other than uh, kind of from a voyeur standpoint, watching other people be small business owners. <laughs> so you and your wife, do you buy it together? Like, give me a sense of what you know, we know where th this is going the, the partnership aspect of this is going to play a big role here in a minute. Yeah. So give us a, a tee it up for us. What, so, what is this structure here so between yeah, you and your wife? Yeah, we, um, we, uh, created an LLC. Um, we, we bought the business as 50, 50 partners. Um, uh, ultimately we got to a place where, um, somebody had convinced us that being women owned was going to make a difference. Um, even though the, the previous seller was a woman who, didn't have any, didn't seem to have any benefit from being woman owned, but we, you know, I, I said, okay, that's fine. We can be 51, 49. That's, you know, it doesn't really matter. We're married. So it's not going to make any difference. So you and your wife, uh, take ownership of the business 51, 49, mm -hmm. um, only ju really just to take advantage of the benefits of being a woman owned business, which mm -hmm. judging by the way you, you couch that, it sounds like it didn't end up being much of a benefit after all. No. Um, and so give us kind of the high level about how things go for the next few years and yeah. how things maybe start to kind of unwind a little bit. Yeah. So, I mean, it was a, um, it's a, it's a fun business. So you've got a fun group of people to be around, right? So, um, so, you know, running the company was, was great. Of course, the, the challenge for us was that we bought the business in May of 2008. And if you know anything about financial history, um, that was a really tough time to buy a high-end luxury business um, and, and in a place where people spend discretionary income. Um, so uh, fall of 2008 became really, really cataclysmic. And, and we're like standing there holding the bag thinking, oh my gosh, this is going to be messy. Um, but the good news is it, it wasn't. We grew during that time. Um, and then we ended up in, that was uh, through 2009, we opened a, a second location in 2011 um, and, uh, and, and, you know, ran that business and grew that business through, uh, you know, 11, 12, 13. Um, in 2015, we actually bought a, uh, um, 
actually I'll, I'll rewind for just a second. When we opened the second location, that was through also uh, a, uh, an SBA loan. So we, we opened a second SBA loan to, to buy, to open the second location. And then, um, we ended up buying a, uh, manufacturing company that was part of our supply chain in 2015. Um, so that's all part of, you know, that those three companies were, were the, you know, the empire, um, you know, and, and meanwhile, we're raising kids and we're, you know, doing what people do when they're in their, you know, thirties and forties. And, um, and, you know, part of that, the, the story ends where in 2018, where we went through a divorce and, um, and here we are with, you know, significant assets in these, in these businesses. Um, when I exited the businesses in December of 18, um, we were up to probably seven and a half million in revenue. Um, only 500 or 600 of that was from, uh, the manufacturing company. The rest was all, uh, hair, nails, um, skin and massage. Um, and, uh, and we probably had 115 employees or something like that. Um, the businesses still exist today. Uh, and they're still being run by my now ex-wife. Um, so, you know, there you go. Well, Jeff, I want to move to quickly go through your next acquisition story. Mm -hmm. And then what we'll do is circle back to kind of um, how you think about partnerships now, given the dissolution of your partnership with your with your ex-wife, mm -hmm. and I believe with this next story as well. Yeah. So 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 you're let's let's kind of hop over how you get out of the salon business. What do you what do you, how do you how does this next acquisition cross your desk? Yeah. So um, in the fall of eighteen, when I'm uh, realizing that. Uh, the end is nigh, <laughs> um, in my, uh, in my marriage and in, uh, business ownership in the salon world. Um, I kind of put out some feelers to some friends having dinner with a, a friend that I went to West Point with. Um, and we had always talked about working together. Uh, we kept in touch over, you know, 35 years, uh, just kind of, you know, checking in with each other and where we were in our journeys. And uh, he was at a place where he was going to make a transition. I was at a place where I knew I was going to be a free agent at the end of the year. And um, and he said, you know, I, I've got this uh, this guy who is trying to sell his machine shop, um, and he wants we, he's got a buyer coming in from out of, from Dallas, but they want somebody locally to actually run it. And he said, um, so I'm gonna. He's asked me to run the company, and I want you to come and be my number two. And I was like, oh, that sounds like fun. Let's let's give it a shot. You know, that's that's great. And and in that same conversation, he explained that the problem is I haven't heard from this buyer in about you know a month, so I don't really know what's going on. But as soon as I find out, I'll I'll let you know and I'll bring you in on the deal and et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I said, well, if you haven't heard from the buyer in a month, why don't you just tell him we'll buy it? And he looked at me like I had three heads, <laughs> and he said, um, I don't have any money. And I said, you know, I don't either. I'm coming out of a divorce. I don't know what my situation is going to be, um, but we'll figure it out. So then that uh, literally the next day, he reached out to the business owner, um, said he had a, uh, you know, he had a group where he's, he's going to put together to buy the company and wanted to see if, if they would entertain an offer. Um, they were frankly excited about it. Um, and, uh, and then that was, and, that conversation took place in late October of, uh, 18, um, Thanksgiving weekend, we, uh, had a signed LOI. Um, and then, uh, it was away we go. So, 
Um, so we ended up, uh, you know, pulling together the deal at, um, uh, at 12 million, um, 4 million of that was, uh, was a combination of an SBA loan and about, uh, well, 5%. So six, 600,000 of it was, um, was our equity injection. Um, it was not mine and my partners. We actually brought in minority partners for the deal. Um, a total of four and a half percent from those guys. My partner and I chucked in half a percent, and then we had um, uh, eight million dollars of seller financing, um, which is a substantial and kind of ridiculous amount in hindsight. Right. But uh, <laughs> yeah, but he took it. Um, so uh, we closed that deal at the end of May. Um, the structure at the time was um, my partner was fifty-one percent. Um, I was 44 and a half and then our four and a half came from friends and family that were our equity injectors. Um, the 51% was interesting because, uh, we had a moment where my partner came to me and said, look, um, I need to be 51. He just kind of like, I need to be, like mentally, I need to be 51. And, uh, I said, dude, I, I trust you. Like, that's fine. I don't care. You know? He said, I'm not, you know, we should, we'll split all, everything else 50, 50, but for me to get out of bed in, in the morning and know that I've, that I've got this requirement, I, he said, I need to be 51. Just, I need that. And I need the other four and a half percent to come from you. You give that to the friends and family. And then ultimately when they, when we buy them out, you pick up uh, your percentages back. And then after we buy them out, we're 51, 49, but I need 51. I was like, I've known you forever, like mm -hmm. right on, let's go. And, uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> which seemed like the right idea at the time. August Felker is a two-time successful searcher. First with a traditional search fund. The second time around, he did a self-funded search. Today, August runs Oberly Risk Strategies, an insurance firm with a dedicated practice group for searchers and acquisition entrepreneurs like you. If you've got a business under LOI, Oberly will provide complimentary due diligence on that business's insurance and benefits program. A great no-risk way to get to know August and team. They love helping searchers. They've worked with hundreds. Oberly is a specialty insurance brokerage for searchers by a former searcher. Check out oberly-risk.com, O-B-E-R-L-E hyphen risk.com, link in the show notes. Okay, Jeff, what happens at the end of this ownership saga? Yeah, so um, again, I, I guess if you, if you follow me around and figure out my next acquisition, you'll find out when the next cataclysmic thing will happen in the universe. Uh, because the first time I bought a, <laughs> when I bought the hair salon, we turned into a huge financial crisis. We bought the, uh, the machine shop in uh, May of 2019. And less than a year later, we had uh, COVID stuff uh, going down. But... While that was going on, we had some uh, partnership issues that popped, um, and um, I won't go into, well, I can go into gory detail, but uh, it, it came from um, some relationships that I didn't feel were appropriate, and, um, and my partner uh, had decided that um, he was going to exercise some uh, leverage over me because he had a, a higher stake in the company. And he was the ultimate decision maker. And, um, and so we, you know, this partnership fractured, uh, 
due to a relationship that he had. And, um, and then ultimately it turned into, uh, Hey, this isn't the partnership that either one of us kind of dreamt of when we put this deal together. And in December of 2020, I, I basically threw down the gauntlet of according to our partnership agreement, we have this shootout clause in our partnership agreement that allows uh, one of us to make an offer to the other one and then uh, dissolve the partnership as a result. And so, um, and he agreed that he wanted to make the offer and he did. And I accepted that offer and walked. Um, the way a shootout clause works, Will, I don't know if you've talked about this before in your podcast, but um, a shootout clause basically yeah. says- And, and before on. you explain yeah. it, Jeff, before you explain it, Jeff, is a shootout is the same thing as a buy-sell agreement? It's part of a buy-sell agreement, but it's very, it's technical. Um, so it was our, our buy-sell agreement had okay. a, a clause in it that said that if you and I are business owners and we own a million dollar asset, if I make you an offer, then you have only two answers. Either I accept that offer or I counter with the same offer and I, and I have to execute on your terms. So um, what it does yep. is it forces a fair price, right? So if we have a million dollar business between the two of yeah. us and we're 50-50 owners and I make you an offer for 200 grand, instead of you just being upset and not wanting to talk to me because I made you a low ball offer, you have to either accept that 200 grand or you have to pay me 200 grand to get out partnership dissolves immediately. Yeah. It's a great mechanism. Yeah. Great. And so he made the offer you accepted and you, you walked away. Yes. So Jeff, now reflecting on that and, and what the, the salon situation. Yeah. Kind of what are you, what are your, some of your learnings from this or what do you tell? I assume the buy sell agreement is going to be high on your list here because right. it, it is such an effective and common, common, common mechanism to have in the operating agreement. Yeah, right. But what are, what are some of the learnings that the audience should, um, should glean from, from your experiences? Well, if I wanted to be super jaded, I would say never partner with anybody. Um, but short of that, mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, short of that, I would say, uh, <laughs> You, you know, first of all, um, the, the moment that you decide to partner is an exciting moment in almost everybody's lives. They see the future, they see it being amazing and, and they can't wait for it to play out that way. And from that moment, things change, hopefully for the better, hopefully things go really well. Um, but they change. And circumstances change and people change and, and just the, you know, stuff changes. So that would be my first point is that, you know, um, despite all the optimism and energy behind your initial partnership arrangement, something's going to change. And, um, you know, if, if you think about, uh, I was talking to a, a, a guy who was looking to acquire a company, he's 35, not married, no kids. And he's like, man, I can just pour 85, 90 hours a week into this and I'm just ready to go and I want to partner with so-and-so and, and, you know, and, and it's going to be great. And I'm like, okay, but at some point you're not going to be 35. You may not be married. You may, you, you may actually be married. You may actually have kids and you may not want to work 85 hours a week. So like, keep that in mind that, that, that things change, yeah. you know? So, um, so that's kind yeah. of my first one is that things change. Secondly, I would say that um, in the partnership, uh, there are two pieces of the puzzle, right? There, are, there is the, the ownership piece 
and the work piece, right? So, and, and it's, and a lot of times we conflate the two and we say, oh, well, we're 50, 50 owners. And the assumption is that we do 50, 50 work. Sometimes that's the case, but it doesn't always, it's not always the case. And so, um, if you're, if you're 50, 50 partners, or if you're 75, 25, or whatever the thing is, um, you could potentially be doing, you know, one person could be working 20 hours a week because they have a full-time gig doing something else. Well, then that gets taken care of through, right. through compensation, right? That's not owner compensation. It's, it's, you know, operator compensation. So, you know, you want to, I want to make sure that people don't conflate ownership roles with operator roles. Um, it's a, it's an important distinction, um, because it tends to create animosity in a partnership if one guy's doing more work than the other, yet they're 50, 50 partners. Well, solve that through paying somebody more in salary. Um, it, it doesn't necessarily, you can still be 50, 50 partners. That's okay. And you can still distribute, you know, profits in a different way than 50, 50, if you want to, if that's the way you get compensated. But, um, in the end, uh, I think sometimes that, that conflating those two things causes a lot of, uh, unrest. I've seen that situation. I, I think one of the, the good ways, another way to, if, if say one of the two partners is putting a lot more hours into the business mm -hmm. and yet they, they, they only have 50%, but they're putting uh, the equity, but they're putting in 80% of the time, mm -hmm. um, is to explain, well, let's, let's pretend you want to step out of the business and, and only, and, and, you know, we both want to step out of the business and not put in our own hours into this business, what would it cost to put in an operator to replace Correct. you? Yeah. That's what we should pay you. Yep. Yep. Because, because that's what the market price is if you wanted to step out and also not do any work or do a lot, lot less work. Yeah. And that can kind of bri bridge that gap between um, the e holding on to this equity number and compensation market value yeah. for compensation. Yeah. Number. And, and the, so other, the other thing that does, Will, is that it, that gives you... Um, the, the real ability in business valuation to, because, you know, that's a number that you can assign and is, and it, and makes sense to in the business valuation space, right? Like I've got the operator piece of this right, right. dialed and it's actually, I'm paying at a market rate for that instead of, oh, we're 50, 50 owners and we're going to pay each other, you know, a couple hundred grand a piece. And I'm doing 80% and he's doing 20%, but you know, uh, you know, I don't like that. And then all of a sudden, when you go through a business valuation, you have to like peel those numbers off. And what is the right level for that? You know, how much do I compensate this guy for his 80% exactly. and this guy for 20, you know, that kind of stuff. So, um, so, so, so that exactly. piece of it, I think is super important. Um, and, and, and then the, the, the last piece is really all about, you know, and, and this is the, this is where people, um, they, they don't like my advice here, but it's, but it's, you know, prepare for the dissolution of the company. You know, make sure you got, mm -hmm. you have all the D's covered, divorce, disability, death, um, you know, disappearance, all those things and, and dissolution, right? So you've got to really think through, even though you're hyped and excited and, and, you know, life is good, you need to think through the day that this thing ends and how does it end? What's an orderly way for this thing to be un unpacked when something happens unforeseen and we come to a conclusion 
We can talk about how that looks when we sell it to other people. That's usually the piece we talk about. Well, when we sell it, it's going to look like this and this and this. And we've got this great, you know, grandiose plan of what, what it's going to look like when we sell. But we don't talk about is what happens if this thing, you know, uh, goes south? What happens if, you know, you get hit by a truck tomorrow? What happens if, uh, you know, you're not dead, but you're not capable of coming to the office anymore because you're, you've got some debilitating illness? Uh, what happens if you divorce and, and I don't want to be partners with your ex-wife? You know, how, how does that work? So, so as morbid and horrible as that sounds, um, you really have to go down that path of, of you know, thinking through the possibilities of what, how this thing un, unpacks. So for the, the four Ds, mm -hmm. what were they? Death, divorce, Death, divorce disability, disappearance, yeah, disability, disappearance. <laughs> and I kind of added disability. a fifth, yeah, I, I added disability a fifth one called dissolution. Um, but yeah, those are, those are the four that people talk about are the, are, um, death, divorce, disappearance, and disability. And now I, I assume that there's kind of best practices mm -hmm. for each of those mm -hmm. and that maybe there's already language that your, your attorney can just pluck off the shelf and plop into the contract. So you, yes, you and your, your prospective partner have to discuss this somewhat hmm. but you don't have to get into the excruciating detail of all of the if i die if i get by hit by a bus if you get divorced like there's there's just best practices and as long as you say hey attorney make sure these are all covered with you know what tip you know with the typical the typical way to address this is in the operating contract and let's call it a day I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to avoid it, but because no. it is so unpleasant and because this should be written into every operating contract, maybe we can like avoid as much unpleasantness as possible by just being like attorney, there's gotta be a standard here. Just put in the standard for yeah. us, the boilerplate. Yeah, no doubt. And, and there's, there's definitely boilerplate language. Um, I would argue that it's not always placed into the document, um, whether that's through incompetence or, or choosing not to is a different story. Um, and then I would say that just understand it. Like, make sure you go through it and you think about it and you really, yeah. and, and don't, and you don't just gloss over like, oh, well, I'm not going to look at the disability part because I'm not going to be disabled or I'm not going to look at the death part because I'm not going to die. Yeah. You know, like you really need to go through and say, you know, okay, so how does this really work? Like I die, the company has an insurance policy on me. The, the dollars from that insurance policy pay out to my family Okay, I like that. Now, and I lose my partnership in the in the business because my family's been paid out. Now, what happens to the extra money from that? You know, you know, we've we've got a uh, a five million dollar policy, and we and you know, I, I, you know, whatever. I, so, like, I would just argue, yeah, think through that really hard because hey, I'm I'm taking on debt, mm -hmm. and I've got a personal guarantee of three million dollars, and you know, this and this and this. Like, okay, well, how does that all play out? You know, what does that look like? And, and I would, um, I think it's very easy to just say, hey, attorney, just throw it in there. We'll, you know, we'll agree to whatever you throw in there. I, I'd be hesitant to do that. Mm -hmm. I would be really um, mindful of what that looks like. And part of it's that I'm 55 and I'm not, you know, 35. Um, so, you know, I've, mm -hmm. I've, you know it's, it's more real to me, right? Um, but, uh, but the other part of it is just, you know, being, you know, once bitten, twice shy. And, and, you know, to your point earlier, beyond those things, 
you know, there are a number of other clauses and I kind of have these six clauses that I've, I've pulled together that I feel are, I won't say critical, but I would say pretty important to have in any partnership agreement um, going forward. Do you want to share what those are? Or could, do we have time for that? Or can you go through each one quick or what? Uh, sure. I can, I can, um, yeah, I can, I can touch on them. Uh, I may not be able to pull them off the top of my head, but obviously one of them, uh, and the most critical one in my book is the, uh, the buy, sell shootout clause. Um, I didn't have that with my mm -hmm. now ex-wife and it caused a lot of, uh, you know, just pain and suffering during the divorce process, which was already a pain and suffering process. Um, yeah. Uh, the other ones are really related to uh, minority interests. And so they're just fair, frankly. Um, so if I'm a, mm -hmm. if I'm a 40, you know, I look back at being 49% shareholder or 44 and a half percent shareholder with 51s on the other side of the table. Um, I just feel like there's, uh, there are things that you can put in place that preempt, um, you know, wrongdoing. And one of those things is, uh, you know, a, uh, I think they call them general conditions or something like that, where you need 100% shareholder approval to do the, this laundry list of things. And that includes borrowing money, loaning money, um, uh, adding, you know, shareholders, um, changing the business, buying certain, you know, certain dollar amounts of capital equipment, you know, these are the these are the laundry list of things that I have to um, have 100% shareholder approval of. Okay, um, that just protects the minority shareholders from somebody doing you know from some relationship that's gone astray, and all of a sudden there's some, a decision like, oh, I'm going to loan myself money, or uh, you know something like that, and all of a sudden there's some nefarious stuff taking place that you don't have any control over. Um, another one is drag along mm -hmm. tag along mm -hmm. rights. Um, and and those are all about uh, if if a uh, a seller decides to or if one of the owners decides to sell their portion of the company um, that they drag along um, the other shareholders into the deal. Uh, so it can't be that um, my fifty one percent owner goes off and sells his portion of the company to somebody I don't know, and I have no opportunity to sell mine my portion of the company as well. Um, it automatically kicks in that clause to, to pull me along in that deal. Um, mm -hmm. The uh, there, there's another one is a, a, a non-compete. Um, and, and the way I look at the non-compete is actually interesting. I stole this from uh, Jeremy Harbor, if you know who he is. Um, but uh, Jeremy's a big, yeah. Yeah. Jeremy's a big believer in the idea of a compete clause. Non-competes are so hard to enforce. Right. And the reason they're hard to to enforce is because you, know, you can't cut off somebody's livelihood. And you, there's there's a lot of stuff behind that that keeps you from um, being able to to enforce a non-compete. A compete clause is absolutely 100 uh, percent, um, you know, enforceable because you're 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 actively admitting that if I compete with you in this industry, I will pay you X. So it's like if if. I choose to compete in the, the aerospace machining industry um, after I, we're no longer partners, then uh, I will pay you 25% of gross profit for two years. 
that's a very active wow. admission to I'm, you know, this is the risk I'm taking if I go and compete in that space. If I, yeah. if I take one of yeah. your employees, it has the same deterrent effect. Correct. If I, yeah. if, you know, on a non-solicitation side, if I, if I solicit one of your employees or one of your customers, then I will pay you $50,000 per employee, or I will pay you, you know, X percent of gross profit from that, that customer for the first two years. Those are very proactive statements that have to be agreed to. And any, any court in the, in the world will look at that and go, oh, well, you agreed to this. You know, here's your signature at the end of the document. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Were there any more um, thoughts on your on partnerships? Because I wanted to just ask a couple of follow-up questions to things you've already said. Yeah. The other ones I would say, there's one last one that I would point out as far as clauses are concerned, and that is a dividend policy. Yeah. And that dividend policy is um, that you want to f- force the company to distribute uh, dividends. Maybe it's 80% of profit. It's probably not 100% of profit, but you want to you want to force uh, a dividend payout because if you're, if I'm a 10% owner and this is you know again I stole this one run from Jeremy as well you know Jeremy tells a story about having been uh, owner of a of a piano company and at the end of the year they had hundred thousand dollars of profit and he was a 10% owner and they took that hundred thousand dollars and went and bought more pianos he's like I don't want more pianos I want my 10 grand. You know, so, so, mm-hmm. you know, he wasn't interested in, in reinvestment into the company. He wanted to force them to, to make some distributions, um, so that he would enjoy his investment. So, um, my argument there is that maybe they don't necessarily pay out the cash, but they pay out a dividend onto the balance sheet that says, I owe Jeff his 10% or I owe Will his 40% ownership dividend. And we're paying out dividends to everybody, uh, and, and it just forces the company to to recognize those dividends and recognize that they're due to somebody, whether they're actually physically paid out or not. And then, if you can, if you thought about that down the road, you would have a balance sheet item that was that would have to be extinguished in a sale prior to getting the distribution from the the proceeds of the sale. So um, mm-hmm. now, you could argue that there's also a tax implication of that. I'm not a tax advisor, so I don't I don't know what to say there. But and there certainly is a tax implication of putting that on the balance sheet. Um, but I, I would I would say there's uh, that's the way I would I would think through that is to have some sort of dividend policy that forced uh, some distributions as a minority owner. Well, Jeff, I want to I just I want to have t- two last questions for mm-hmm. you. Uh, first, I want to pick a little bit at the very first thing you said, which is that. Um, your jaded answer, which is don't have a partner. Yeah. <laughs> Period. Yep. Uh, now that that was a little bit of a joke, I assume. Maybe, maybe not. But from the acquisition entrepreneurs that you've talked to mm-hmm. that want to partner, um, do you generally find that you believe in that they should do this? They just you just advocate hard for them to really protect themselves. Or do you see in our world that maybe people jump into partnerships too readily? Hmm. Big picture this for us. Are people too eager to partner in your sense? Or is it just about right? You're just out here making sure that they protect themselves. Yeah, it's, I mean, that's a great question. I'm not I'm not sure how hard mind I am on, um, on trying to convince people not to do it. I, I see a lot of people do that 
uh, you know, jump into partnerships. And I feel like those are somewhat um, not well thought through. Um, and I hear, I hear some horror mm-hmm. stories, which, which give me pause. Um, I, I love the, I, I, yeah, I, I hear stories too about people who've been partners with good friends of theirs and it's been, and it's worked out deliciously. Um, I, great. I'm happy for mm-hmm. them. I, I just find it. Um, I, I think that the, uh, the, the challenge, um, is that a, you have to go in eyes wide open and, um, and you have to be very willing to have hard conversations. Um, there's a, uh, methodology that Gino Wickman talks about in one of his books, um, where he says that, uh, he wants you to have a, a same page conversation every month. Will and Jeff are partners. We make sure on the calendar, there's the same page meeting once a month. What does that mean? Hey, Will, we still on the same page? You still having fun? Mm-hmm. Is this good? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, good. Let's keep rolling. Let's keep rolling. We had those. Mm-hmm. I had that with my, with my most recent partner. Uh, and sadly he canceled those after about, you know, a year. And so I kept trying to have that follow up and have that same page conversation and he just wasn't interested anymore. And so, um, you know, uh, I, I really find that to be a, a, a powerful conversation because you have to look each other in the eye and say, are we good? Is this where we want to be? Um, I, I've just heard way too many stories, Will, about, um, partners who were best friends who hate each other, you know, brothers who didn't talk after, yeah. you know, being partners for 20 years. I mean, my, you know, my ex-father-in-law is, is that case. He had a, he had this construction business that he owned and he was partners with his brother and he hadn't talked to his, well, you know, by the time he died, he hadn't talked to his brother in the last 25 years. Horrible. Like that, you know, who yeah. wants that? What kind of life is that? So, um, yeah. So I'm not necessarily going to tell people not to do it. I'm just going to tell them to be very guarded, eyes wide open. Here are some clauses to protect you when the thing when the thing goes south. Um, focus on the outcomes. You know, share that outcome together. Hey, Will. You know, we're partners, and and the outcome that's most important to me is that we're friends first. Like that's the outcome that I want. I don't care about how much money we make or if we make any money. Even, it, you know, if this thing goes sideways, I want to be your friend. I don't want this to be screwed up. And, um, and even though I had that exact conversation with my partner, we still, uh, you know, the, the, the friendship was fractured through uh, being, being business partners. Yeah. And so that sucks. And so, uh, you know, yeah. so the easiest way to avoid that is to just not be partners with anybody. <laughs> um, yep. Yep. You know. And, and well, you know, the other way is to, is to protect yourself. I love the, con- the, the concept of the same page conversation. Mm-hmm. And even though your former business partner stopped having those, wanting to have those conversations with you, the point that I guess the, the, the meta point there is if somebody won't have the same page conversation with you anymore, you're getting, you're getting the message of the outcome of that, of that conversation anyway, Correct. which is no, we're not on the same page if, if we can't have the conversation. Correct. Um, that's great, Jeff. Um, last question was about your main point, which is that things change and people change and et cetera. Mm -hmm. And, um, it's, it's such a funny, uh, it's such a funny point because it's so obvious to all of us, 
the things change. But when you're in the you know when you're in the heat of passion <laughs> with your Dude, new partner, right? it's going to be like this forever, I, right? It, totally. Um, totally. So so but 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 what what do you so when you tell the acquisition entrepreneurs, look, things change. Okay, what what do I do with that information? Is that is that kind of just is that kind of your pretext to then say so therefore we need to make sure you really protect yourself in the contract as uncomfortable as it is. Is that yeah. kind of the follow-on? Yeah, it really is. I mean, you know, it's 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 that we don't know what it's going to look like um, you know, 5 years from now, 10 years from now, 15 years from now. And um and that we don't know, you know, there, there are so there are myriad ways that things could change, right? You could have a sick kid, you could have you know a, a spouse who dies, yeah. you could have you know a divorce, you could have you know you could personally be injured. Um, you know, there there's so many different things that could happen, and you can't cover them all. Um, you know, by paper, um, but it is the it is the kind of precursor to protect yourself protect each other. And, and, and that's one thing I do want to make a point of. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that as you go into negotiations on a partnership that, that you protect yourself. I think you protect each other. You know, like you, you really yeah. have to be fair and think through it with, yeah. with a clear, fair mind. It's like, um, you know, I, when I coach people on contingency planning for their business, you know, like what happens if, you know, you hit this, debt level if you you know if the sales dip this way or you know that sort of thing and and these kind of levels of of death con that you have to go into as a as a business if you can think through those things clear-mindedly in the moment you know in, in a clear-minded moment and write them down if i if this happened i would do x then your action under fire is going to be x it's not going to be some passion like, mm -hmm. oh my God, what do I do now? And all of a sudden you just do whatever's closest yeah. or whatever. So, um, so I'm a real believer that if you have, if you kind of set out what those, what those, uh, you know, what's the reaction in this circumstance, um, then, then when the moment happens and, and let's all, you know, hope for the best, but prepare for the worst, right? So, and I'm all about, I'm, I'm a pretty positive guy. You know, I, I, I see the, uh, the outcomes as always being positive. Um, so, so when I talk about, you know, cataclysmic stuff, I'm like, eh, it's never going to happen. But I also want to say, you know, if it did happen, then what would I do? And so I want to have a clear-minded picture yeah. of how I'm going to respond. And the same thing goes for when people change and when circumstances change, what are we going to do when that happens? You know, we're going to do X. Okay, that's that's hard line written in the contract. Right on. I'm good with that. Um, so that's yeah. where I think that you go with that. The reason to go through all of this at the beginning of your partnership is obviously because that's when you have to. I mean, you're you're gonna you're gonna form an LLC or whatever, and you have to mm -hmm. codify everything at the beginning. That's mm -hmm. just kind of how the chronological th way things go. Mm -hmm. But yeah, there's a there's also a happy psychological benefit to it, which is. The earlier in the process and the partnership of the business and the acquisition that you are, the two of you, the two partners, the less, the more objective you are. And Correct. the more you can be like, when you're imagining these hypothetical, these negative hypotheticals, 
you could say that could be me, that could be you, that could mm. be me, that could be you. Right. You know, you don't really know yet. You're not yet invested. Bad things, good things haven't happened. I haven't invested seventy percent. You've only invested in thirty percent time. So, so it's like you're not you're you're unencumbered by any history yep. yet that 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 will bias bias you to only seeing your own interests in a given situation. You can look at both partners objectively and want to and want to protect both parties objectively because you don't know yet which party you're going to be in the future. Yeah, so absolutely pretty no. interesting. And I, and I think you're, you're that's a, that's a great point. And the and like I said, my view is you know I say this from a from a you know, a, a, a guy with a lot of uh, battle scars, but I, but I honestly don't say it as protect yourself. I say, create a fair agreement that protects both of you in, in the right. situation that one right. or both, or, you know, and, and, and when it's more than two, then it becomes a lot more complicated. Um, but in the end, yeah, it's, uh, it's, <laughs> it's protection for, for everybody who's involved and really being mindful of um, what those partnerships look like and how to how to make sure that we're not that that nobody's at a disadvantage um, from from a you know from a from the jump um, you know and then be ready right. to be flexible and understand that things are going to change. Jeff, this has been great. Um, how do you prefer people reach out if they want to? If they have help, if they need help on a partnership, if they want, you know, if they're looking at a machine shop or a hair salon, or or if you if you want to provide people your six clauses, maybe I don't yeah. know, maybe you have a PDF that you give people or something, and if you don't, maybe you should because that could be a great a great helpful tool for people. How, how do you like people to reach out? Yeah, I, I appreciate that. My personal email address is yeah uh, Jeffrey Evenson at gmail dot com, and uh, and I'm happy to share that. Okay. And if somebody wants to uh, jump on and and uh, have a conversation. I'm, I'm always open to conversations. I think, uh, I, you know, and, and I, I'm a, I'm a big believer that, um, uh, collisions are the catalyst for greatness. And so, um, you know, when, when we have the opportunity like to, uh, to collide people, um, whether it's with me or with people that I know, um, I think great things come from that. So, uh, always open to that. Good deal. And of course for acquisition lab members, they, have regular access to you via, via those office hours. They can hit me up on Slack or they can come to the, uh, to the uh, office hours. You're right. Jeff, thank you very much for the time, sir. This has been great. My pleasure. Thanks, Will. Appreciate it. 